Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NY Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Wilder, and today we have a great guest. You probably know him. He is a DC legend, and he's he's an institution. He's been around forever and has a great wealth of experience that, you know, he worked at think tanks uh, 40 years ago and spent quite a bit of time on Capitol Hill as a professional staff member doing strategic forces in the House and Senate, and then he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategic Capabilities. So he knows a lot. He's seen a lot. Of course, I'm talking about Brian Green. Brian, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So today we were going to talk about missile defenses as they contribute to deterrence writ large. For for some, you know, there's they often see missile defense as this unique niche capability that sort of is off to the side and is not part of a broader deterrence approach. But you've argued that, in fact, it is sort of a central capability in a larger deterrence strategy. Could you, for the, for the audience, sort of maybe lay out how missile defenses contribute to deterrence writ large and sort of what are those big areas in which it, it makes that contribution? Yeah. Um, well, let me start just by maybe offering a little bit of context, and th- this will involve sort of a preliminary discussion of what deterrence is and, and uh, the different conceptions of deterrence and how they function and the implications that has for missile defense. And then with that as background, we can go into sort of the uh, more relevant, uh, maybe pressing opportunities that missile defense uh, provides to, to reinforce deterrence in today's environment. So um, one time honored, uh, and I find fairly convincing sense of deterrence involves uh, deterrence as a, a method of managing conflict. Uh, it is uh, uh, deeply involved in persuading an adversary to not to expand uh, or escalate an ongoing conflict. So when you think about deterrence, it always starts in the context of, in the context of a conflict. I mean, we don't worry about deterring England or France, because we're not in conflict with them, even though they have nuclear weapons, we do worry about China and North Korea and, and Russia and so on. Uh, so we're already in a conflict and deterrence plays itself out within that context of conflict. So in my more expansive moods, I will uh, argue that uh, deterrence is all about war fighting and, uh, and war gaming. You know, you're in you're in a fight, so to speak, not necessarily at the military level of conflict, but in in a conflict. And the wargaming part of it is you're playing through the next moves of the game and trying to figure out, you know, what you're going to do next, uh, how the, how the other guy will respond. 
so it's it's that kind of active um, active process within the context of a conflict. Now, current doc doctrine, current doctrinal uh, definitions of deterrence don't really emphasize this this sort of view of deterrence. They they emphasize uh, something with a sort of an offensive cast to it, an offensive tone. Um, deterrence in these definitions comes out to be um, persuading an adversary not to engage in an action by, by virtue of a threat that you make. Um, these, these threats um, promise to impose a cost uh, and this cost should ideally outweigh any potential gain that the adversary would would uh, accrue from pursuing this action. So it has this sense of reaching out, touching, punishing, uh, sometimes denying, but uh, you know there's a strong sense of offense in all of this. And you can see where this particular view of deterrence, this definition of deterrence, isn't isn't necessarily very conducive to to um, a prominent role for missile defense in it. Um, so um, we might ask, uh, given the time-honored uh, you know, management of conflict point of view, where did this offensive cast come from? I think it came more or less directly from the advent of nuclear weapons and the absence of any viable defense against nuclear weapons. Now I have a problem. I, I'm uh, potentially threatened with devastation and I have no defense against it. What's the answer? Well, the answer is to um, you know, threaten my adversary with an equal or more avid response to nuclear aggression so that the cost to him of uh, engaging in nuclear aggression against the United States is far more than he can tolerate. Um, the cost will clearly outweigh any potential gains. So there's the offensive cast to it. Now, within that, within that sort of... Um, construct, there were sort of two general strains of thought. One was, um, okay, if we need offenses, we don't have defense. Uh, what kind of offenses do we need? We need something that's flexible, something basically points at the other guy's warfighting uh, potential. Uh, you know, a wide range of targets could fall into that, but certainly his nuclear weapons could fall into that, um, that conception. Um, the other point of view uh, basically revolved around the notion that, no, that's nuclear war fighting. You don't want to fight a nuclear war. You get, you get uh, deterrent stability from mutual vulnerability, and you don't want to threaten his war fighting potential. The way to deter him is to leave yourself essentially one option, and that's if he uses nuclear weapons. My one option is to go after the civilian infrastructure, cities, uh, things that allow his civilization to, to continue. Um, yeah, kind of the mad uh, you know, global balance of terror, mutual assured destruction. Um, it, it strikes me that, you know, these are the counter value people compared to the counter force people on the other side of that equation. It, it does strike me that the counter value people sort of ignored two facts that I think are sort of incontrovertible. First, that that, that counter force sort of construction is not about nuclear war fighting. It's about what set of capabilities do I need to most effectively persuade my adversary not to escalate to the nuclear level. 
That's, that's conflict management. It's deterrence. So they missed that, but they also missed the idea that, that uh, going after civilian infrastructure is just as much a warfighting strategy as, as the counterforce point of view. And the people who don't think that uh, civilian infrastructure is, is really a warfighting strategy should maybe, you know, read a, read a history of, of Sherman's march across Georgia, or maybe the history of the 8th Air Force in Europe, or, I mean, we, we, were, we were doing a number on civilian infrastructure in those things. So it's a warfighting strategy. It's really a question of uh, what is the best set of capabilities to persuade my adversary not to escalate a conflict, an ongoing conflict. Um, so with that, you, you can see kind of this, you know, this warfighting perspective uh, really does kind of have, have room for missile defense in it. You know, if that's one of the capabilities that helps deter, that's a good thing. Whereas the other side, the counter value, thinks of missile defense as positive evil. It's a war fighting sort of technology, denies the other guy his, his uh, ability to respond to any aggression we might pursue, uh, undermines stability. I mean, there's a whole range of arguments there. Um, so there's, there's a fairly distinct um, breakpoint between these two perspectives. Um, I, I personally find the counter value argument to be very unpersuasive, and I'm much more persuaded by by the, the counter force missile defense sort of uh, sort of construct. So with that as background, uh, I think I think maybe we can see now as a as a conflict management strategy uh, how missile defense might fit into that. Um, so we can start wherever you want to start. I can start with uh, sort of the nuclear balance, or I can start with a more general discussion of, of deterrence. So let me ask you, it, this idea of denying an adversary success. Uh, I mean, but even before we had missile defenses, whenever, you know, our fear in the 50s and 60s was Soviet air attack. Uh, you know, the Air Force's largest command at one point was Air Defense Command. And it was essentially the the airborne approach to missile defense, and, and then you know once once the you know the bomber threat was was reduced, we reduced air defense command, and it ultimately went away. And then you know now as we think about uh, deterrence by denial, because I usually think about deterrence as dissuasion, which is the sort of demarches. Uh, norms, norms of behavior, and trying to use these more passive approaches to shaping an adversary, and then deterrence by denial. And the example I always use is I used to work in in the embassy uh, in the in the UK, and that was right at the time when the the attacks on Kenya and Tin, I think it was. Tanzania happened where they bombed the U.S. embassies and the two embassies in Africa. And then we we put up, you know, concrete bollards so that you couldn't drive up on onto the steps of the embassy. And then we put up Jersey barriers and and then they ultimately moved the embassy, you know, south of the river on a big plot. So you could never even get close to it. And that was deterrence by denial. And so I do you suggest is in your view is is deterrence by denial and missile def defense sort of do they belong together or do you see missile defense as fitting differently into this equation 
Um, well, look, in, in, in the presence of very thick defenses, you have some hope of denial. Um, uh, and that, that would involve actually a comprehensive defeat of offensive forces. I think we were very, very far away from that particular perspective, certainly in the, in the strategic nuclear realm. I mean, today we have 44 interceptors deployed and, uh, you know, Russia and China can both overwhelm that defense. Um, that is not to say that uh, defenses uh, in the presence, uh, even modest defenses in the presence of those kinds of nuclear forces have no effect on deterrence, because I think they clearly do, and I think they reinforce deterrence. Now, if you're, uh, you know, you, you could define uh, denial as simply denial of the ability to be confident in the outcome of your attack. And even modest defenses can contribute to that. Um, so uh, I don't know, it would be worthwhile to think about, um, you know, conceive of how nuclear forces might be used in the current circumstances uh, and how even our 44 interceptors might, might, uh, might play in that arena. So um, first thing to notice about 44 interceptors is not going to intercept a lot of, a lot of warheads. It's going to, you know, it's, it, it's going to be, a, a relative few warheads. So does that actually affect deterrence? Just the ability to intercept a few? And the answer is, I think, pretty clearly yes. So think about first rogue states. And, uh, you know, the one rogue state right now with both missiles and nuclear weapons is North Korea. In fact, uh, our ground-based mid-course defense system was originally conceived of as, as a, a um, an answer to a burgeoning threat that was well outside the confines of the Cold War construct. It wasn't Russia, it was a small state ruled by uh, a leader um, in whose rationality we had limited confidence, shall we say. He, he was not, um, not the most balanced kind of guy. He was kind of wild and erratic. Um, so how do you deal with that? Well, you. You try to stay ahead of that threat and you build a defense that uh, can deal with the threat that this country poses at that given time. So how does that affect deterrence? Well, if Kim Jong-il is convinced that his relatively small force uh, and relatively unsophisticated force, you know, not very many missiles, not very sophisticated in how it operates, if he's convinced that that won't get through, does he really wanna launch understanding that he, in fact, will be denied his goal. He won't be able to destroy what he wants to destroy. He won't be able to attack the way he wants to attack because of that very limited defense. That should, should be a powerful reinforcement to deterrence. In addition to not getting through, he is very likely to suffer some sort of serious consequence. You know, here's a guy who just launched nuclear weapons. They were intercepted, thank God. Are we really going to let him stay in power? The answer is probably not. Uh, how we would remove him from power, open question. Would we use nuclear weapons in response? I, I don't know the answer to that question. But, uh, you know, those are the kinds of things that's, that, that would be going through Kim Jong-il's head at the time, and that's what we wanted. So powerful reinforcement to, uh, uh, to deterrence that way. And our effort in the early 2000s to put missile defense in Europe that eventually evolved into uh, uh, SM3 in Romania and Poland, that was motivated by the same sorts of concerns uh, with respect to Iran. You know, they were certainly developing a lot of missiles. We were concerned about their development of nuclear weapons. 
and it was very self-conscious effort to draw um, Europe into uh, the same security framework that uh, the United States was operating. We wanted to be um, well defended against uh, Iranian attack and other missile attacks. Uh, we wanted Europe to feel the same sort of confidence uh, in, in their defense against uh, uh, potential Iranian threats. Um, uh, and that, that symmetry in, in uh, security interests, that symmetry in uh, you know, ability to defend uh, helped, I, I think, align uh, our ability to act together with NATO, um, helped assure NATO that we'd, we'd be there for them. So that, that's kind of the rogue sort of picture. Um, secondly, think about any, oh, go ahead. Well, you know, you, you sort of, you bring up those early days of the North Korean missile program. And as, you know, Kim Jong-il has been replaced by Kim Jong-un and, and the KJU is building a, a much more robust weapons program. And, you know, he said that he wants a peer uh, nuclear program to the United States and, you know, that he sees nuclear weapons as a way to ensure the U.S. will never attack. And because he's whatever missile defenses we build, he'll overwhelm. That's, you know, sort of his rash, Kim Jong-un's rationale. I I wonder, one of the, the sort of the big questions I have about and and we'll take a break and I'll give you a chance to think about it while we take a break. But I wonder is, is our missile defenses is there sort of a rationale similar to the rationale terrorists have when conducting acts of terror? They, they, their biggest fear is that the attack fails because then they don't achieve this. They achieve the antithetical psychological effect as terror. And so they're often dissuaded purely by the fact that, that they fear failure because failures is the worst thing that could happen. And so I wonder, do missile defenses have a similar effect when you're not trying to have strategic nuclear war, but let's say you might want a demonstration strike or a discrete strike for a very specified political purpose? Or, or does it work differently? Now, I'll, I'll pose that question to you. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Brian Green. I posed sort of an interesting question before the break. How do you see this sort of psychological effect? Well, I think um, for the for the um, purposes of limited attacks, as you as you note, um, a, a failure of such an attack, and we can go into a couple other examples of those kinds of attacks. But a failure of those attacks 
does have uh, the, the effect of making the, uh, the attacker look, look weak. And uh, that is not what they are aiming at when, when they perform these sort of limited attacks. Generally, they're, they're looking to show resolve or they're looking to achieve um, a, a limited result or uh, whatever, whatever the purpose is, they're, they're aiming at a limited attack. They want to show strength. And showing weakness, showing failure, showing military inferiority is not not what they are after. So I agree that it's 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 a a, um, a a serious consideration for those who are thinking about such attacks. And and I believe that that uh, even limited missile defenses can significantly contribute to that deterrent effect. So I'm I'm inclined to agree with your your assessment. Now you so, are going to shift to to the larger strategic realm. And so how, how are missile defenses relevant, you know, against a Russia or a China or, you know, somebody who isn't, you yep. know, a nation with a small nuclear arsenal? Yeah. So I would point to uh, perhaps the, the, um, the threat of an EMP attack where an attacker like Russia or China or North Korea potentially um, only sends over a, a very small number of warheads, potentially even just one or two. Uh, detonates a warhead at altitude, the electromagnetic pulse, uh, wreaks havoc in the United States, uh, you know, knocks out the power grid, uh, disrupts sensitive electronics, disrupts the economy, doesn't kill anybody on the ground uh, immediately, but, uh, you know, airplanes might fall out of the sky, for example. Um, but again, it's a small attack conducted potentially by a large power. Um, those, those kinds of attacks are rendered problematic if you have a limited defense capable of intercepting even a small number of warheads. Uh, and you, you mentioned demonstration attacks, and, and that's, that's another one. Um, uh, you know, a, a nation wishing to show resolve, wishing to show that he will not back down, that he is going to uh, raise uh, raise the stakes all the way to the nuclear level, but he's not ready yet to uh, initiate a large-scale attack. Um, again, I mean, that, that by definition is a small attack, one, two, several, but not many warheads. And, and those kinds of attacks are, again, rendered problematic uh, by even limited defenses. So um, essentially what that does is kicks out several rungs of the escalation ladder. If they're going to attack the United States with nuclear weapons, they're going to have to launch a substantial attack, and that virtually guarantees a very substantial response, increasing their cost and making it not, uh, not a worthwhile activity, not a worthwhile escalation of the conflict. Now, um, note that missile defense by itself isn't necessarily, I mean, it certainly isn't right now, a sufficient uh, deterrent. But in combination with um, effective modern nuclear forces, nuclear triad, uh, it, it contributes to deterrence and, and uh, provides our leadership with lots of options, not just sort of a knee-jerk nuclear response. So those are a couple of examples, but I would, I, I would even argue that even in, in the face of a much more substantial attack, uh, missile defenses do contribute to deterrence. How do they do this? Well, first and foremost, um, you know, our adversaries won't know precisely how we're going to use those interceptors. And 
it's certainly possible, you know, if I were president and I saw a bunch of missiles coming at me, I think I would just shoot at all of them. But, but it's certainly possible, and our adversaries will have to consider this, that those, those limited number of interceptors would be used differently. Um, you know, protecting a small number of very high priority targets. Um, you know, submarine bases, command and control nodes, you know, whatever, whatever those small number of targets would be. And what does that do? Well, that undermines the confidence of those larger powers uh, in, in the outcome of their attack. They don't, know, they don't know for sure. In fact, they have significant doubts about whether or not they'll be able to destroy the targets that they're shooting at. Um, and, you know, honestly, just in how they're trying to plan their attack, they won't know quite how to go about doing that. It's going to get much more complicated, even in the face of a limited number of interceptors. Now, that's kind of where we are today, 44 interceptors. We could make it a lot harder for them uh, in, in those regards if we added interceptors, if we added multiple kill vehicles to the interceptors, if we improved THAAD and SM3 so that they'd be more effective at intercepting uh, uh, intercontinental range missiles. Um, uh, in fact, SM3 has already been tested against an ICBM range target and, and intercepted it. So we know that there's limited capability there already, but there are many things, many technical improvements you could make to both that and SM3 that would allow for a much more effective ability to, to intercept long range missiles. And the thicker you make that defense, the more problematic attack planning becomes and the less confidence they'll have in the outcome of their attack. And it's it's hard to conceive of how that would not reinforce deterrence. So yeah, you you my picture you, of it. You make a good point because as I think about is deterrence as an outcome. If deterrence is, you know, it's an effect we achieve uh, out of our readiness to fight. And and this is one of the things is that, you know, you often hear detractors of the nuclear arsenal say, well, you know, the sole purpose of a nuclear weapon is to deter the use of a nuclear weapon. And we, we don't want to be provocative and we don't want to seem like we're preparing for war fighting. And, and I would argue the opposite. And I would say that what you actually want to do if you want to preserve peace is you want to prepare for war and you do that by actually preparing for war. And the more prepared you are, for, <laughs> the more prepared you are for war, and that includes nuclear war. And the more you feel like, and you demonstrate to your adversary that you think you can win one, then the more they're going to think twice about using it. And missile defenses, is as I best I can tell, are sort of an a way to further make an adversary question whether he can succeed. Because in the end, you know, you want your adversary to sit there, think, can I, can I succeed and at what cost? And you always want that cost to be far greater than, than is, you know, I can succeed. And, and so I, I sometimes wonder for those who are detractors of, of, you know, talking about winning nuclear wars and detractors of missile defense, I often think that they don't really understand adversary psychology and that that tends to be the, the biggest challenge. Again, I'm strongly inclined to agree with that perspective. Um, you know, we had this 
notion, dominant notion, it wasn't the only notion, but it was certainly the dominant no notion of this, this uh, uh, balance of terror. And that was a concept that, for example, the Soviet Union never really bought into. Uh, we had the ABM Treaty and uh, abolished defenses, and you know, us naive Americans thought that that would assure uh, mutual vulnerability. The Russians uh, took that to be, uh, you know, carte blanche to start building all kinds of counterforce capability and ways that they thought they and, and civil defense and so on um, that they thought would would help them uh, to a dominant position. Certainly, where they could deter us from any action, but if if you know, deterrence were to fail, they, they would have means of limiting damage to themselves. So they weren't big fans of this, this, this sort of mutual balance of terror that uh, most American strategists, certainly in academia and many in government, fought into. So inclined to agree. Let me ask you, as we come near the end of the show, if you had uh, my, I, I don't think I've ever told you this before, but whenever I was in the desert, I was out walking one day and I came across a lamp and in that lamp was a genie. Now I've already made my three wishes, but I get to let other people make their three wishes. And so as you, if you were to make your three wishes in regard to missile defense in the United States, what, what would be those three wishes? Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting and very good question. Uh, uh, hmm. I suppose, um, well, f at least in the near term, what I would like to see, I think, is a much tighter integration between our offensive systems and our defensive systems. Right now, they kind of operate in separate channels. Uh, you know, defenses intercept and offenses go out and strike and, and uh, you know, reach out and touch people. Uh, they have separate command and control streams. And as near as I can tell, and I've tried to look into this, um, the offensive stream and the defensive stream, even though they both kind of reside in strategic command, are not, are not really tightly integrated. And if you could push those together, so that they operate in a much more tightly integrated fashion, it does seem to me that that would, uh, in a powerful way, reinforce deterrence. I'm going to defend myself uh, with my defenses in the early phases of the conflict. My offenses will pick up in the, in, in the slightly later phases of the conflict and reduce uh, whatever is shooting at us. And that kind of tight integration, where I have, I have an active plan how to use my defenses, how to use my offenses in conjunction with those defenses, it seems to me that that, that would be a very powerful statement in terms of how to, how to arrange things in the near term. You know, in the, in the long term, maybe it's back to, back to the future. Boy, you, you, know, um, you know, President Reagan, when he announced the Strategic Defense Initiative, he, he, you know, he was profoundly dissatisfied with the, uh, with the notion of mutual vulnerability as a way of preserving peace and our security. Uh, and uh, sort of the early versions of this is, you know, we want a sort of a different kind of nuclear umbrella, right? We want, we want, uh, we want a defense that can uh, adequately defeat, deny the Soviet Union, uh, the ability to accomplish anything with its nuclear weapons. And that involves the ability to handle very large scale attacks, 
And if I, you know, look, if you're going to give me a genie, <laughs> I'll, I'll take it <laughs> yeah. umbrella, you know, I mean, that's, uh, that's a very powerful way of, you know, averting the dangers of escalation to the nuclear level. Um, and I suppose the third wish would be an unlimited budget and unlimited technology <laughs> development to enable all of that. So. Uh, well, that's always a good wish. <laughs> uh, well, so, Brian. Uh, go ahead. Now go ahead and finish your, your thought. I was just going to make a, a, a quick point that even at lower levels, uh, you know, nuclear deterrence is sort of this top-down sort of thing. It, 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 you know, I know President Obama thinks he can buy, buy a, a you know, clever, clever rhetoric, limit our, our um, uh, reliance on nuclear weapons to just uh, deterring in a nuclear attack on the United States. But, you know, it really doesn't work that way. You know, I mean, nations tend to be afraid of any conflict that has, uh, has the potential to escalate to a nuclear level. So, um, so there's that top-down aspect to it, but there's also a bottom-up aspect of it. The better you are at fighting uh, at lower levels and discouraging escalation at lower levels, the more likely you are to avoid nuclear war. So you think about um, uh, missile defense, you know, the SM-3 THAAD, Patriot, SM-6 sort of family of systems, to the extent that they allow us to properly engage at lower levels of uh, conflict and properly deter at lower levels of conflict. When you think about how, how will nuclear war likely happen, it's not likely to be you know, a so-called bolt out of the blue. It's likely to be this sort of stepwise escalation. If you can tamp down uh, conflict at those lower levels and to the extent that missile defense contributes to it, that will help you avoid that escalation to to the nuclear level, and um, I think missile defenses do help the United States engage. They do help uh, uh, help us honor our commitments, and commitment is you know certainly a significant part of the deterrence equation. You know, I got I got capability and I've got communication. How do I communicate those capabilities and whatever threats I want to issue and and I've got credibility. Well, missile defense certainly enhances credibility and enhances our ability to engage, enhances our, our, our ability to honor our commitments to our allies. It reassures our allies and, and our allies make us stronger. All of those reinforce deterrence at those lower levels of conflict, potentially avoid getting to the military level at all, and certainly help us avoid going all the way up to the nuclear level. So Again, just in the broader context of deterrence and how missile defense fits, I think that's an important part of the question. All right. Well, Ryan, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. We're out of time. I want to okay. thank the listeners for joining us. Uh, as always, Brian, this was, you know, it was a great discussion on the sort of the role and implications of, of missile defenses. So we appreciate you coming on the show. It was my pleasure. I appreciate it. We'll do it again sometime. And thank, yeah. <laughs> and thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode of Nuclecast. You know, it was it was interesting to see how Brian described deterrence and sort of how he defined it, and then how he explained its operation and how he sort of unpacked it. You know, and it's always good to to see how.
different folks think about deterrence and how they define it and what the the qualities and characteristics of it, you know, and is deterrence a strategy in and of itself or is deterrence an outcome of your grand strategy? And so, it, you know, that was that was really interesting. And of course, we talked about, you know, missile defense and he added further layers of discussion to our previous talks with missile defense folks. And so in the end, it was a great it was a great interview. And hopefully you liked it as well. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Krumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Newcast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.